Hi, Best welcome everybody. Master. Welcome to Masterclass. So uh, you probably noticed that we're in a different location. We have like a different, I mean, it looks pretty professional to be honest with you guys. Uh, it looks really good. It does, right? And um, the, one of the reasons is because we uh, we have like a live studio audience Hundreds. Now, so yeah, hundreds. Millions. Of yes. People are coming in, and uh, uh, we I know we have about, I don't know, five or 600 people that yeah. are joining us right now, um, some of which are in this room, which is exciting because this yeah, is the yeah, first yeah. time uh, we've ever had people actually in the room with us during Masterclass. So I see lots more folks coming in, um, and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. And so I think to reward them, we're going to let them ask any questions that they have first, Ooh. correct? Like right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, not first. Like, for, like priority wise, oh, not like right okay. now first, right. but like. Let us teach first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like priority wise. So, um, I, if you guys have any questions, I'm gonna go to you guys first. And so, just raise your hand um, after each one of these uh, guys, lady, uh, talk, and um, and then we will uh, we'll jump in and do that as well. Okay. So here we are. We're doing the book of Matthew, and. Um, do you feel overly qualified for this? Because my name is Matthew. Yes, Fun it fact, is. Do you know what Matthew means? Uh, I don't know. Gift to God. Gift to God. Okay. No, All no. Right. Of, of, of. I don't think we can give God gifts. <laughs> give can give to you God. Can, but you can. You can. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, you can. Um, okay. Anyway, so gift of God. Yeah. Gift of God. Aww. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, anyway, so we're going to jump in and uh, we're going to kind of look at the book of Matthew. So who's up first? Me. All right. Tell us first. Hi, guys. All right. Woo, I got to go back here. Oh, by the way, as you're doing that, um, I forgot to say, to submit questions, um, you can text them, which should be on the screen right now. You can uh, comment in on Facebook or um, on YouTube, I think. And the text number? Yeah, the text number. That's and it. then I think, is that it? That's anyway, it. there's lots of different ways. So ask your questions as we go along, and I'll track those. Okay? Oh, look at that. Oh, there that we works. are. Now I have volume. Okay, good. All right, we're ready to go? Yes. All right, okay. let's do it. So we are going to be spending the next five weeks studying. Can you, like, look at me, Cody? Because I feel like I'm talking to your back. Sorry. <laughs> He's got to read the questions. I know. I'm already getting questions in right now. Okay, so, okay. okay. So we are going to be spending the next five weeks studying the Gospel of Matthew, okay? So I want to give you just quick a little bit of background on this book of the Bible. It's the first book in the New Testament. Um, and it is authored by Matthew, the disciple slash apostle. So he was one of the 12 guys who wandered around with Jesus. Um, after he left, Jesus kind of made these 12 guys the head of the church. So that's who we think he's the author. The reason we think he's the author is not because it says anywhere in here that he was the author. It's just that the early Christians, whenever they were like, hey, you should read this book. It's the letter from the, the apostle Matthew. And that's. So we, they told us it was Matthew, and so we believe them. So that's, that's the author. Um, we believe that it was written before A.D. Uh, the reason for that is because he mentions the temple a lot in here before 70 A.D., um, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so we think that had the temple already been destroyed, he probably would have spoken about it differently in this gospel. So that puts it as, as one of the, the very, very early writings of the Christian church. Uh, so, I, have I have a question about yeah. that. Um, so one of the things that kind of confuses me sometimes is you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes. Are they in that order because that's the, the chronology of when they were written or when, so, what one was first? So we're not super sure when they were written. They're, they're in that order because that was kind of the original thought was, was how they were written. 
Um, but recently, in like this century, or not this century, but the 1900s, um, they've been able to kind of date, like source tracing a little bit better. And we actually think Mark was written first, that it was the earliest gospel. And it, um, all of these gospels are associated with an apostle. And so Mark was associated with Peter. Um, Mark was the guy who wrote it, but we think he was telling Peter's story. And then we think that Matthew and Luke got a hold of Mark's gospel, and they both said, man, I could... Was there another gospel involved hold in on, this? Hold on, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> so Matthew, Matthew and Luke both kind of got a hold of Mark's gospel, and they said, this is amazing. This is the word of life. We want to tell this to our people, to our churches, because they were all kind of scattered throughout the world. And so Matthew and Luke kind of at the same time wrote their Gospels, and they used Mark as, the as kind of their source. And then we want to say maybe 30 years after that, in like AD 90, the Apostle John decided that he was going to go ahead and tell the same story just a little different way. So that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels, and they kind of are more orderly. And then you get John, and he's just crazy. Like, he's like writing poetry, and he kind of goes about it a completely different way. So if you so. want to really confuse people, do you know what the other source was? The Q document? The Q document. Q. Yeah. Look that up later. We're not even yeah. going to get into it. But Okay. okay. So what this gospel is, is it is a, pro a gospel is actually a, a Greek word. That means it's like a proclamation of a king or a kingdom. And so this is the gospel of Matthew about Jesus Christ. And he is proclaiming the king, Jesus, um, and, and the kingdom of God. And the thing I want you guys to remember as you're thinking even, especially of the synoptic gospels, that these are not history books. They're not newspaper accounts. We are very concerned with, you know, in our current chronology, we're very concerned with um, the, the specific dates and times and order of events that things happened. Um, and the gospels, the, the gospel writers, they were not really concerned about that. So you'll see things happen in different places in the different gospels. Don't get too caught up in that. Just know that these guys are trying to teach you something about God. They're trying to teach you theology. So don't get too caught up with, you know, were there two angels at the tomb or one at the tomb? That stuff is not going to really be very profitable to you. Just focus on their message of what they're actually trying to teach you about God. So the outline of the whole book is the whole book, Matthew, is about the kingdom of God. Okay, so we're going to spend some time talking about that over the next five weeks. Um, the kingdom of God. And I've kind of put it in this little pretty picture format. So um, the first part, chapters 1 through 4, which contain Jesus' birth story, his baptism, his temptation in, in the wilderness, this is kind of the promise of the kingdom. And then at the end of the book, which is kind of the intro here, the end of the book is the fulfillment of the kingdom. So you kind of see the kingdom fulfillment, and that's the story of Jesus' death, his trial, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then in the middle, you have five discourses. And the way that you can kind of see the discourses is at the end of the discourse, he says it five times, Matthew says, after Jesus had said these things, he went on to do something. Okay, so that marks the end of a discourse. So it'll go like a narrative, Jesus went and did stuff, and then he talked. And then he went and did stuff, and he talked. And so each of those five sections kind of has a theme. It's not perfect, um, Matthew wasn't super concerned about the structure, but 
I like structure. So this is kind of the structure that we're following. So the first discourse um, is on the people of the kingdom. The second discourse, which will be week two, is on the power of the kingdom, the power that Jesus has, the power that he gives to his followers. Um, the third discourse talks a lot about the conflict, the conflict that Jesus is having with um, the religious leaders, the conflict that his disciples can expect. Um, the, the fourth is on the kingdom relationships, so the relationships and the way people in the kingdom relate to each other. There's a lot about the church in there. And then the last discourse is on kingdom expectations. What can we expect to happen in the future? So there's a lot of um, eschatology in here so that, the, you know, talk about what the end times. So that's the overview. Don't ask me any more questions. I've got to get through this quick, okay? Okay, so for this first section, we are talking about kingdom people, okay? So the narrative of this section happens in chapter 4, 17 through 5-1. And in that section, in 4-17, we get Jesus' message for all, this is the summary of Jesus' message for all of his messages, which is, repent, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. Okay, and then it goes on into the next little section, which is, um, you know, the rest of chapter 4, and it kind of describes what's going on. It tells us where this is happening. It's happening in the region of Galilee. Um, it tells us who it's happening to. Jesus calls his first disciples, and then Jesus begins to, to draw crowds to him. He draws, you know, all of these people, and, and this is the group, that the, the location and the group of people that Jesus has come to proclaim this message to. And this is my meh face because that pretty much describes all of these people. They're kind of meh, okay? Galilee is up in the north part of Israel. It's the part that for hundreds and hundreds of years they've been hearing only bad things about these people. They're the ones who abandoned God first and got carried off into captivity. And even the people who came back to live there, they probably should have gone to Jerusalem. We know that all of the good Jews went and lived in Jerusalem and only the bad ones stayed up in Galilee. We also know, and you can see it multiple places, they all had accents. So they, it was like basically, you know, you can tell a lot about someone. I heard Connie had a, has an accent. She hides it very well, you know. Like think of, it's, these are country bumpkins. Bump, country bumpkins. Like they are people that you would look at and just automatically kind of think they're stupid because of the way that they talk. Like that's, that's Galilee. The disciples are fishermen. They're, they're nobody. They're nobody important. They maybe have like a, a small business, but it involves a boat and a net. Like that's it. They don't have anything. And then the crowds, it says they're the sick they're the lame, they're demon-possessed. Like, these are not people, when you're starting a movement, you want power, position, privilege. You want people that can take you places. And these people are meh. <laughs> they're none of those things. They have none of those things. So Jesus starts his discourse in Matthew chapter 5. And in the discourse, he starts out with a, a, a series of uh, blessings that he pronounces. They're called the Beatitudes. That's the very first part of Matthew chapter 5. And basically what those, one, one translation that I loved of the word blessing is congratulations. Like when he says, blessed are you, he's really saying congratulations if you're poor, if you're meek, if you're all of these things. And basically what he's saying is all you meh people, 
Congratulations! This, this kingdom is for you. It's your kingdom. And, and, the, and what he says kind of in Be- the Beatitudes, which I'm just going to summarize, is that the kingdom is, this is my fancy thing for tonight, it's, that's world, it's the world turned upside down. Mm. So everything. I saw that and I was impressed. I, I thought was it like, was a Hebrew word. Yeah. I was like, Mahom. Hey, look at yeah. this. You have, we have like world people here that are clapping. So so fun. I love that it. That the okay. world values the power, the position, the privilege, <laughs> everything that the world values, they, it has no value in the kingdom. The kingdom just turns it upside down and it, it values opposite things. And Matt's going to get into that. Um, So Jesus then goes on to give us a bunch of kingdom rules. Like these are the rules that this upside down kingdom, this is the rules that you live by. And so there's kind of a few sections. Um, The first section is the section on law. So Jesus kind of talks a lot about the Old Testament law and he gives us six examples and they all start, you may have heard it said, but I say. So he gives us six examples and basically the summary of this is you have heard it said, and there's these teachers of the law who actually are not in the crowd yet. We will see them come into the crowd. These, right now we've just got the sick and the lame and all those people. Um, but what Jesus says is those people who, used, who have t- been teaching you, those Pharisees, they're wrong. They've got it all wrong. And what he says is they think that you can just follow a list of rules, but what Jesus says is that God is looking at your heart. Your heart is what's important. So that's kind of the first little section. That's chapter 5, 13 through 38. And then the next little um, section is three contrasts. So you're going to see about um, the ways that the Pharisees do things and the way that kingdom people do things. And these three contests all revolve around piety, like the way that we observe our religion. So the three contrasts that they look at is the way that we, t- that we give you know, give alms, um, the way that we pray, and the way that we fast. And the summary of all of that is that the way that we do, we practice our religion, the Pharisees, they do it so people can see them. We don't do that. Kingdom people don't do, we don't, it's okay if people do see us, but we don't do it just so that people see it. We do it because we know that God sees what we do. The third section talks about the things that we need, okay? So the things that we need in the world. So the first little part, it talks about money. And it basically says, who's your boss? Is money your boss or is God your boss? And so I have boss God, that we need God to be our boss. Um, And then the second section talks about worry. Um, And it just says, don't worry. I think it says that... uh, Worry is mentioned like nine times in Matthew, and seven of them are in this section. Don't worry. And the reason that we have God as our boss and not money, and the reason that we don't worry about our clothes or our food or anything is because God cares about us. He cares what happens to us. We are his kingdom people, and he cares. And then you're going to get in uh, chapter 7, 1, through 6 and then chapter 7, 7 through 11 are kind of two little floating sections and they both kind of relate to what has come before. So the first little section talks about not judging people. It's the log eye, like take the log out of your eye and that whole section. And that really goes back to this piety 
section. And then the next one is the ask. If you ask God for something, he wants to give it to you. And the reason for that is because he cares. It goes back to that needs section. So that's how those kind of fit in. And then we finish it all up. This is kind of the summary of Jesus' teaching. Is how, have you guys heard of the golden rule? Mm. Golden rule, okay. Is, Never. Can you, mm. What is it? Do unto others as you would like. As you would have them do unto you. That is the summary of, of kind of all of this teaching is do what you want other people to do, you, do to you, do it. And that's kind of the capstone of Jesus' teaching. And then he has this little section right at the end, which basically says, now you can't sit here with all of this teaching and do nothing. You have to have a response. And your response better be to go out and do it or there's going to be trouble in your life. And so he gives four different warnings in this next section, the last little part of seven. His first warning is being in the kingdom is really hard. The path is narrow. Living other ways, it's much easier. But my kingdom is hard, so I just want to warn you. The second one is that there are going to be people out there that are trying to deceive you. There are false prophets. There are people that are going to claim different things. And so the way that you can tell if something is true or something is false is you look at the fruit. Look at the fruit that that person or, or that group is producing. And if they're producing kingdom fruit, then it's probably a good indication that they're part of the kingdom. Three is there's also going to be people. There's, these people are trying to deceive you. This third group is actually the people who you can delude yourself. You can think that you have got it all figured out and that you're all good, um, but you can really, really be deceived. And number four is basically just do it. Obey my words. All of this stuff that Jesus is teaching, he says you will be foolish if you just hear it and you don't do it. You have to do it. To have any kind of an impact in your life. That's really good. Cool. Thank you, Autumn. All right. Um, as you can hear, by the way, if you're watching online, which I know a lot of you guys are, is um, be here next week. Join us in person. I don't know if, um, I mean, more and more people have been coming, so this is exciting, but we want this place to, like, we want you to be here because this is fun. So um, those of you who are in the room, does anyone have a question about what Autumn just shared so far? Okay, so any questions that we got so far? I know it's dark, we, but raise your hand if you have a question. And no? Okay, I think we're, we're good. Okay, um, I do have a quick question about this. So it's Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's kind of recorded differently in different Gospels. Mm -hmm. um, was this like a one-time talk, or did he just flow and just kind of... Or was there multiple talks, or how did this all put, so get put we together? So of, I think, three different minds at mm. this table. Mm. So okay. I was reading, the way that I understood this section was that Matthew basically took all of Jesus' kingdom teachings and kind of piled them all together. Because this is a theology book, it's not a history book, he basically took all of it and put them all together. Yeah, so you were saying before is um, we are like, you know, post-enlightenment, scientifically minded. And so we think as far as like reporting goes as chronology, right. right? So everything's in the, you know, and that's not how they thought. No. They didn't think like that at all. So um, you think that this could have been separate teachings that they compiled into like a theme or, yeah. okay. Yeah, and part of the reason I think that is because of the way that the Bible, the book of Matthew, the synoptic gospels especially got put together was there were these, you know, this happened what, like 20 or 30 years at least after Jesus died, 
um, that this gospel got written. And so they had been orally telling these stories over and over and over again. And they, they developed ways of telling the stories that they thought communicated the message the best. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke were just the first guys to write them down. Mm. Um, okay. No, so. that's good. Do you guys have anything that you want to you add to that? Well, so... In the commentaries that I read, it said that maybe that the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, that they could be compiled different, different stories from different times, different sermons, but at least the Beatitudes, which would be, I think, Matthew 5, 1 through 13 or 15, um, that would have probably most likely been at one given time. Okay. Yeah, so some of the things that I've heard from different commentators uh, as well, if I remember correctly, is, um, and Doyle, you would hate this, is he gave the same sermon over and over and over again <laughs> to different people. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and so um, it wasn't just like he gave this talk one time. And so sometimes you see variants in the different gospels, they would have different words or he presented it differently or whatever. Um, it's because he didn't just give this talk one time. He may have given it a bunch of different times. And this is the one that, that was recorded in, in the book of Matthew. So, okay, um, let me just see. I've got a couple of questions. Uh, um, oh, Someone wants to know the, 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 the straight mouth thing. What is that again? Meh. Okay. Those are the, those are the Spell people. It. Spell it. M-E-H. Okay. Meh. 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 That's like, that's how you would describe the people that you got to have a little Yiddish Jesus. accent in there. Meh. Meh. Okay. Meh. All right. Before Matthew, you jump up. Um, anybody, last call for questions on this, this uh, the outline and all this? Yes, right here. That's a great question. So the question was, um, was there scribes that were writing down things as he was talking? Um, was it just that uh, people remembered what he had to say? Did somehow the God come and just kind of inspire them to write this? How did that all kind of come together? Uh, so I would say that the, it was probably closer to number two. Um, I mean, I, I would be, I don't know if a fisherman knew how to read mm. at that point. We know that Peter eventually did. But Matthew wasn't reached. a fisherman. He was, he was a tax collector. Yeah. So, you know, there, there were very... He knew how to read, he just didn't know how to add. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knew how to add in his own favor. Right. Um, yeah, so we really don't know. Um, it was an oral culture. And so they, what we do know about oral cultures is, you know, that they would uh, transfer information just by memory is you, you ha can have incredibly accurate descriptions that are handed down from generation to generation just verbally. Um, we are not an oral culture, and so we have lost a lot of that ability. But it is possible to be very precise in, in handing down information and to, to remember things very well. But we also do have the Holy Spirit that helps us to recall things. And these, again, like I was saying, these were sermons that people would preach over the years. Um, and so they were repeated over, and you know, Jesus potentially repeated them a lot of times. And then these disciples then would go and repeat them to their congregations as well. Okay, so uh, th this next, yeah, because, well, do we need to read this for, first? Because this kind of tackles what I think you might be. be Maybe. Might be. Okay, well, you go then, and then I'll do it. Yeah, so if. Randy, if you have more questions about that, um, you can study something called verbal plenary inspiration theory, and it's the way in which the canon 
was collected and put together. And so, as you were saying, that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, even the Bible talks about that the Holy Spirit, uh, one, of its, one of its uses in, in a believer's life is to bring things to our mind, right? To remember Scripture. And in this time, it would be to remember the words of Christ. They also had something called apostolic authority. So they were actually empowered by God's Spirit to literally write down um, what, what God was saying word for word. And so his hand was guiding that all throughout all throughout that entire time. Yeah, so I actually come like from more of uh, probably a different perspective. I'm a little bit more cynical and skeptical about things. Um, and so actually one of the questions that just came in is, uh, and let me just make sure I read this right, uh, wouldn't taking a bunch of Jesus' teachings and mashing them up over years lead to possibly having misquoting Jesus? And, um, and, and so how do we know that this is actually what Jesus said is, is kind of the question here. And so you would say, well, there could be apostolic authority yeah. in that um, when it was written down, the apostles would have had the veto power to say, no, 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 that's not at all what he had there said. Eyewitnesses too, yeah. you know, and then there was eyewitnesses, and we knew that Luke says he went and interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses and things like that. Um, and so there would have been like a, a kind of a self-censoring within the, the Jesus community there, um, or there could just be inspiration. That's kind of what... Um, you know, other religions would claim is, you know, spiritual. So I come from a much more skeptical uh, viewpoint um, is I go, I don't know, man, that seems kind of iffy to me. That seems like a really easy way for you to jumble up. And, and a lot of uh, more like either skeptical scholars, um, there's even a book called Misquoting Jesus that, that argues this is no, you know, it's like the game of telephone in which I tell you, you tell him, you tell him, by the end of it, it's going to get all jumbled up. And so there's no way that we can, can know that. Um, and so there's a book that kind of was uh, a revolutionary book in uh, the Jesus study, historical study, uh, Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's a, if you are interested in this, it is a huge study. It's about, I think, 800 pages. And he argues that all of these have signs that they were recorded by eyewitnesses. And so um, one of the arguments um, is, uh, and this, this is just one out of many, is if you look at in 1 Corinthians, we have this uh, stanza where it talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, the eyewitnesses to it. And it can be shown to go within five years of Jesus' death and resurrection, that this is what people were teaching. And so the whole misquoting thing doesn't really work very well because, um, one, you have the eyewitnesses, you have the self-centering community, you also have it being dispersed very quickly, um, very early on. And so I think manuscripts, there's like 27,000. 27,000. Thank you, Rain Man. Uh, 27,000. Um, yeah, thank you. And, uh, and in different languages that are within the first uh, couple centuries. And, uh, and so it's very interesting. I, I, I find this stuff pretty fascinating. But uh, I, I think as far as ancient history goes, there is no one who can touch uh, Jesus and the, the his, historicity of kind of his accounts. What's the story of, uh, of Troy? There's only four accounts in the ancient world, and there's 27,000 of the New Testament. Right. So to, to say that you've somehow misquoted, um, even if you don't believe in inspiration, there's an incredibly good argument that says that all of these teachings can still be recorded as, as history. And, and oftentimes in, in historical studies, they are. So you look at the most skeptical scholars, and they will still say large chunks of this they would affirm as historical. So anyway, all right, you're up. Let's do it. All right. How much time do I have? As much time as you want. Oh, man, these guys, all, these I'm people sorry. got nothing going on. Everybody else is going to log off. It'll be fine. All right. Can you guys see the board? Are we good here? Is the board there? 
I don't know. All right. Well, here we go. All right. So uh, Cody, this last weekend, he, uh, he kind of took a huge chunk of Scripture, which is uh, Matthew chapters 3, really through 7. It begins in John the Baptist, and it ends really kind of with the parable of the wise and foolish builder. Now, uh, if we could kind of summarize a huge percentage of what he was talking about, it was basically this. What does it look like to live in God's kingdom? Right? What does it look like to emulate his values and live from the values that Christians are supposed to adopt and yeah, live, live really from. He called this the upside-down kingdom or autumn reworded word, world, something. Anyways, he called it the upside-down kingdom. It comes from Tim Keller, and he is a great resource and person to go for this kind of um, conversation. Now, in some sense of the way, all of God's values, all, all, all of uh, uh, God's kingdom values are, are opposite. They're inverted. They're completely different than the values for mankind. Now, when you think of this, this is a radical departure from the way that we have been told to really live our lives. It's a, it's a complete departure when he says we're going to go through words like meek and, and some other words that like when you think of people in authority, when you people think of people who are doing something with their life, the words that he uses aren't words that we would use to classify people that are really doing something with their lives or changing the world. And so this radical departure from what is our normal values, I think, does provide, at least we need a lot of guidance to actually live the values out in a way that honors God, in a way that we can kind of reflect his kingdom best. And so today, that's kind of what I want to talk about. It's through a section in the book of Matthew chapter 5, and it's called the Beatitudes. And if you have your Bible, whether you're here today or you're watching online, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, but our real kind of context begins in verse 3. And so here in the, is the Beatitudes, it's Jesus kind of telling us what it looks like for us to live in and ultimately from his kingdom. Like, what does that really look like? And I say all of this because our natural default is not to live heaven down. It's to live hell up. It's not at all to live kingdom values down. And so we need, we need guidance. And the other thing that Jesus often talks about is we need his spirit to empower us, to equip us to live the life that God had created us to live in a way in which adequately and accurately reflects his values, what it looks like to be an ambassador for his kingdom. And so uh, when you think of this, I'm willing to say that there's probably tons of times every single day that you are being influenced to center your life around something, to make your life about a certain value, to chase this, to pursue that. I mean, every time I open up Facebook or every time I open up Instagram or my Gmail account or, God forbid, I would watch the news, whatever it may be, right, there's someone there telling me how to live my life. There's someone there telling me that this is what I need to pursue, this is what I need to make my life really about. And I think whether we like to believe this or not, we as people are, I think, influenced pretty easily. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew that you and Jesus knew that I and his followers 2,000 years ago would have the tendency to adopt values that he didn't want his followers to adopt, to almost live in his kingdom but yet still hold on to so many of the values from the kingdom of our world. Like that today is the American dream. We're not going to talk about this concept called moral therapeutic deism, but it's the idea that we have created God in our own image. There's tons of church-going people who have adopted views of God that aren't biblical, like that he is for most primarily your happiness and your material, material prosperity. That, that isn't true. And, and in fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he actually talks about that. Now, all throughout Matthew chapter 5, and really even in the book of Matthew, in fact, the Gospels as well, you're going to see a reoccurring phrase. The phrase is this, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. Now, what Jesus does when he says this is something pretty interesting. He takes something that was common for people to believe and then presents a new path, a new purpose, and a new plan for that thing that people would adopt or that thing that people um, would commonly believe. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and let me kind of set the scene for you. Jesus has gathered his disciples on the side of a hill, 
and his followers, and this is the very first time that he is publicly addressing his followers. I need you to keep that in the back of your mind because this is hugely important because this is not the very first message that I would give. I promise you, this would not be like the number one message that I would give because he says some things that are pretty like blunt, some things that are definitely uncomfortable because the people in his audience, a huge percentage of them could have been, were most likely Pharisees. People who were almost occupied that God was like super pumped and stoked on them because of their good moral formation and behavior. And so you can imagine that his disciples and the early followers, they would have been super intrigued about what Jesus was about to say. And so in just a few minutes, Jesus has not given them a list of rules to do. It wasn't a huge list of Simon says. That's why they're called the Beatitudes, by the way, not like the Duitudes, right? He's not super interested in you like in a Simon says thing. He's not, I'll say, I'll say it this way. God isn't most primarily concerned about what you do. He's most primarily concerned about who you're becoming. And that's what the Beatitudes are about. They're about a becoming a very, ty- a very specific type of individual, what a follower of Christ actually looks like and what it looks like to live these values from the inside out. And so Jesus gives them eight blessings. Each of them almost read like a, um, a proverb type of proclamation. And for the sake of time today, we only have a chance to really go through four of them. Um, and most theologians and commentators say these are the, 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 the four major themes that you need to know to unlock, to understand what the Beatitudes are really about. And so follow with me, verse 1, Matthew 5 says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. Verse 3 says, he said, blessed, I want you to highlight that word, are the poor in spirit. Highlight poor in spirit, which is already like a weird, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to highlight that. Two words, and I have to go quickly. And so uh, the first word that I want us to study is this word right here, blessed, blessed. So it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the Greek word makarios. It best translates to uh, an extreme sense of happiness. A modern day rendering would be this. It's going well for the one who is. It's going well for the one who finds himself in this situation. It's going well for the one who finds themselves in this type of condition. So it's saying it's going well for the one who find themselves spiritually poor. Second word we'll talk about is the word poor. Well, what, is that? what does that mean? It's the word patohos, and it translates best to this sense of spiritual poverty. Like I said, Jesus, he's probably not going to be talking about a material poverty here because this is his very first message, and he's talking about who he really is. We get to that in, the, in, in later uh, chapters here. And so the heart of what he's talking about here is this idea that we are spiritually impoverished before God. We are spiritually poor. We offer nothing to God. It's this idea that, yeah, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing at all to give him. God has something called a seity. That's to say that he is self-existent, contingent upon nothing, needs nothing. But yet he still loves us for some, for some reason. And so to really see the idea of what it kind of means, this type of poverty, the image in antiquity would have been created in the minds of the people that would have heard this would have had this idea of being so poor that you were destitute. The image that would have been created, you were holding on to someone's like pants, begging for something, begging for help in any sense of the way. And so what he's talking about, like I said, is a spiritual poverty and a type of a poverty that you, give, you, can, you can offer not God nothing. You can't get your way to heaven. There's nothing that you can do and that you need a savior. You're, you're, and I said this a few weeks ago, that you're not a mistaker who needs a second chance. You're a sinner who needs a savior. That's the epicenter of what he's talking about right here. And so to sum it up, basically what he's saying is blessed are the poor because they're going to prioritize their relationship with God. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They're going to recognize and prioritize their need for God. And then that means that they're going to have an eternal life in God's kingdom. And so I'm going to give you four values today to go quickly. Theme number one, value number one is only Jesus saves because only Jesus can. Only Jesus saves. Follow with me, verse four, it says this, blessed, makarios, it's going well for the one who is mourning for they will be comforted. 
So I don't need to give you the Greek word here because mourning means what you think it means. And what it means is a deep sense of sorrow and grief with the same depth of losing a loved one. And maybe, maybe that's a feeling that you guys have felt before. It's the same word here used when uh, Jacob thought his son Joseph had been killed by wild animals. It's also the exact same word used in the New Testament to describe the disciples uh, mourning as they watched Jesus be flogged and ultimately Jesus be put to death. Now, I want you to see Jesus is doing something here interesting. He's building an argument, right? So premise number one, you're, sin- you're a sinner and only Jesus saves. Premise number two, he's building off. He's connecting back to what he said earlier. And what he said earlier is this idea of our spiritual condition, the human condition before God. And so what he's connecting back is he's saying this. There's a reality of our spiritual condition and that before God, we, uh, without Christ, we're doomed. We're, we're, we're completely doomed. And so when you realize you're, human condition, without Christ, that should cause in you a sense of mourning. It should cause in you an emotional and volitional change. It should cause something to move inside you that in some sense God bankrupt heaven by sending his son to die for you and I on a cross. That should not just be an intellectual ascent, but it should change something within your heart. This is called orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right teaching. Orthopathy is developing the right passions because of what, what you know to be true. Both of those come together and they give us something called orthopraxy, which is that manifest in practice. Now, because of what I know and how I love, my life looks differently. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. See, another point that he's saying is that when you truly understand God's generosity towards you, because you see the reality of your sinful condition, that should cause you to mourn over the reality of what happened on the cross, that it needed to happen, that it needed to happen for your sin and mine. And he says this because if you never realize the truth and the reality of sin, you're never going to have a great grasp and concept of God's generosity. If you don't understand how wicked, the Bible says in Jeremiah, for the heart is wicked above all else, for but whom can understand it, right? If you don't understand how wicked you are, if you don't understand how fallen you actually are, Romans, for the wages of sin and death, for all have fallen uh, fallen short of the glory of God. If you don't understand these concepts, you're never, ever, ever going to develop the appreciation that God saved you from something. That God has a purpose and, and, and a plan now for your life. And so seeing sin for what it really is. Sorry, we're getting a lot of requests in right now. Mm. I hate to interrupt your flow, yeah, fine, but right I'm right tired right. of everybody commenting. I'm trying to just go super quick so Doyle can come up and land the plane, you know? Um, you spelled poor wrong. Where? Where? That's oh, the you're type right. of poor, I think. Um, I didn't, I didn't. Don't, you think that's my handwriting? I'm not, you, I'm not. Did it was you do that? It was Autumn, no, actually. It was Autumn. I'm not going to no say who reason. it was. Okay. If Matt can't write You think that's my handwriting? I am, I'm more excited you think that's my yeah. handwriting than you thought I spelled that wrong. I mean, I'm just telling you what the people, don't shoot the messenger here, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get it. I'm, here, fix it. Okay. You gave me the wrong color, I think. Oh, no, it's the right one. Oh, you're right. It's the right it, color. A bunch of English, English majors out there, I guess. There it is. Thank you. Yay. Okay, good. We feel better now. Is that it? Was that, was that, a, is that where we're at right now? Um, yeah, I do have some other questions coming in. Do you want to take those now or at the end? You're the boss. All right, Actually, go, quick, the boss. go quick and then I'll give you the questions. Buckle up. Here we go. All right. Um, I'm, we're going to skip. All right, so value, uh, value or theme number two. God's goodness produces repentance. There's a quote I really like by a theologian. It says this, you will never see the cross as something done for you until you see it as something done by you. Follow with me, verse five. Blessed. So Makarios, it's going well for the one who is meek. That is not something you would say about somebody in authority. You never say that about a general, a president. They're meek, right? Blessed are, those, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Highlight meek and inherit the earth. 
Let me give you a quick little biblical definition of meekness. It is power under control. Power under control. I'm going to give you a quick little example of this um, that, that isn't mine, but uh, maybe you've, ever, you've seen the movie uh, Hackshaw Ridge. It's a true story of a World War II medic uh, named Desmond Doss, who for me, I think, emulates this idea of meekness so well. In 1945, uh, Doss and his division, um, they were in the Battle of Okinawa. And for about two months, eventually his division got called up and to uh, basically go up a ravine and, and to fight the Japanese up on, on this ridge. While they got there, to their surprise, there was thousands and thousands of Japanese soldiers that knew and were waiting there basically for them. And uh, it says that about two-thirds of them died. And so one-third of them went back down the hill, and then there was Desmond Doss by himself up there. Now, the thing about him is he didn't believe in killing people, so he didn't carry any self-defense weapons. He was just a medic. And so one-third of the, of the army goes back down the hill. He stays up there the entire night. He's crawling over bodies, finding people who are alive, and he spends the entire night, which he's, you can imagine he's thirsty, you can imagine he's hungry, you can imagine he's just terrified. His bullets are flying over his head. He spends the entire night finding, finding people who are alive, who are badly injured, and then spends the entire night hoisting them back down. He, all in all, he saved 75 men um, that, that night. In an interview later in his life, he said something that like, really resonated with me. He said that after each person he would rescue and put him down the hill, he said this prayer, Lord, please help me just get one more. Help me get one more. You can imagine the adrenaline as he's, he's, he's tired, he goes back and he's crawling back to find more people. Lord, help me just get one more person. See, that for me is meekness. See, true meekness is only developed when someone completely trusts God. And because they trust God, they're able to abandon what is comfortable. Abandon what is comfortable and give to God knowing he's going he's to work out things in the end. To abandon your finances, can give it up to him. To, to, whatever you, is a sense of comfortability for you, giving it over to God, believing that he's going to do something with it. Years ago, Doyle was speaking on... In this passage, probably eight or nine years ago, and I remember in the auditorium, it was speaking in the Beatitudes, and our entire auditorium had like the words, like meek, and uh, the, all the other words in the Beatitudes just hanging from the ceiling. And I remember he said something about when horse trainers break um, horses, they call it being meeked. Uh, it kind of like stuck with me. Now, what's interesting is they don't, they're not trying to cripple the horse or even take away the, uh, the strength of the horse. They train him to use his strengths in control. In the same way, God doesn't want to come into our life to cripple us, to take away our strength, but rather to give us control so that he might complete us and then give us the ability to achieve all that he has created us to do. When you think about it, it takes real strength, and that's the essence of what meekness is, to give your life over to God, right? To, to say, here are the reins of my life. Take control. Do, do with what, my, what you want with my life, with my finance, with my marriage, with my kids, with my job. Do what you want with it. That takes strength. And that means that meekness is the very action of us being confident enough in God, and confident enough in his promises that we can give up control of our lives unto him. And so as with every beatitude, this one ends with a promise. And the promise here is to live, uh, if you live meekly, you'll inherit the earth. Now what he's not talking about is you're going to get a huge bank account. That's not at all what he's talking about here. But what he is saying is if you're a meek person, not only will you have joy, but you'll have a, a type of life that transcends anything that this world has to offer. Because you have developed a type of strength and a type of stability that nothing this side of heaven can give you. And so the value or theme number three is, is this. Meekness is about giving up control and giving God room to work in our lives. Give him an inch, he'll turn it into a mile. Lastly is verse six. We'll go through this quick. This is probably my favorite one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Highlight hunger and thirst for righteousness and the word filled. Quickly, let me tell you about the word righteousness. 
It means to pursue a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. But for our conversation today, I just want you to think of righteousness as a desire to be morally right with God. A desire to be morally right with God. Two of the words that stick out to me that probably stuck out to you were the terms thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger. It creates a metaphor that I don't think really resonates today as it did 2,000 years ago because food and water is plentiful. But when you think about it, these two words, it'll dawn on you that both of these are appetites. An appetite is a desire to satisfy something. But... An appetite always comes back. You've never opened the fridge, had that one hamburger, and then never needed food ever again in your life. No, an appetite continuously comes back and needs to be satisfied once again. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who uh, are hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's drawing a comparison. And this is important to what the world hungers for, or better yet, what the world desires for. Power, influence, success, money, comfort, happiness. And what Jesus says here is revolutionary. He says that if you make your life about those things, number one, you will never get it. And two, you'll never be filled, you'll never be satisfied, or you'll never be at peace. See, he says if you make your life about these things, you're going to have a longing in your heart that'll never be quenched. It's just a black hole. It continues to get larger and larger the more that you pursue these types of things. No relationship, no amount of money, no job, no amount of influence, power, possession, or position socially is going to fill that void, that hole in our heart. And so the very last value or theme, and I'll hand it back over to Cody, is this right here. The byproduct of pursuing righteousness is a full life with a full heart. In the book of John chapter 10, uh, verse 10, I kind of spoke about this a few weeks ago. Jesus said, for the, thief come, or, for the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's talking about Satan, but he's also talking about the pattern of this world. In Romans chapter 2, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And so there's a pattern. If you make your life about that pattern, if you chase that pattern, you invest in that pattern, all it's going to bring you, all it's going to take from you is the very things that you want. Satisfaction, joy, purpose, meaning, hope, fulfillment, all of those things. Jesus finishes in John 10, 10, says this, but I have come to give life and give it abundantly. And so his equation here, what he's saying is if you want a a heart that is full, a life of purpose, then pursue righteousness. Pursue a desire to be morally perfect with me, to, to, to have right relationship with me. And that's kind of the essence of what he's talking about there. Cool. Thank you, Matt. Mm -hmm. Good job. Um, Okay, so let me me open up the uh, floor to any questions, either about what Matt said or uh, just about what you've read this week. So any general questions about Matthew or any of the readings for this last week, if you have any, I've gotten a few online, but I want to give you guys the opportunity first. Like I said, if you come here and you actually are part of it, you get priority. Special. Yeah, you're special. So any questions from you guys that you have on uh, Matthew in general, anything that we've read or anything that Matt has said? Okay. Um, If you think of one, just raise your hand. I'll give you uh, one that we just got in online. Uh, This person says, several times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus asked the disciples to not tell anyone when he performs miracles. Yet they all spread the word immediately. And uh, and, uh, was Jesus being modest or was he testing his followers? Who wants to take Doyle? Neither. We haven't heard from you. Neither. Okay. It was timing. Remember when his mom says, turn, uh, you know, do something about the wine situation at the wedding? And he says, my time has not yet come. Mm-hmm. So he was warning them not to speak publicly because he knew that his life was going to build to a crescendo. And um, he knew the timing of that. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't trying to get popular. He was trying to establish the kingdom. Cool. Right on. Great answer. Uh, okay, anybody else? Anybody here before we um, move on? Okay, Doyle, you're up. What time is it? 
Okay. You got plenty of time, bro. Wow, you guys give me two minutes usually. I know. It's I'll go quick. It's because Matt talks so fast. I know. He yeah. did talk I learned, fast. I learned, I learned for the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so, so here's, my, here's my deal in this, uh, in this, as always. I get to kind of do a, a few minutes on um, kind of takeaways. So I, I thought maybe today I would do a takeaway at the end, and you talked about it on, uh, at the end of yours in, in Chapter 7 verses 20 through, 24 through 27. And, uh, and so I'll read that in a moment. But uh, as we go through these next few weeks, uh, you're going to get just a, it's like trying to take a drink from a, a, a fire hydrant, right? You just heard huge. But here's the problem. We don't want to just fill your head up. We want to make it through your heart into your hands, okay? And so I'm going to help you maybe just think about some things. So I'm going to encourage you um, each day to pick something and, and to work it through so that you do something so that, in, as Matt talked about, you can be someone different than you are now. So how do you get through God's word something that you can do that day and that you can then be someone? So for example, it, it's really hard to set out to be meek. I'm going to be meek today. It, it's, it's, you don't even know what to do, right? It, Maybe other people could help you be meek. Maybe not us. Oh yeah, but so yeah, the pastoral here, team here. here here's yeah. the so so a lot of things, a lot of the spiritual gifts and a lot of uh, spiritual characteristics are byproducts of something else you do. Okay, and so how does something I read today help me um, do something, some exercise, a byproduct of a of a character trait? Does that make sense? So if it's meekness, what is what am I seeing in Matthew that would help me become a more meek person? So example, looking for someone who is less fortunate or weaker than you in some way. It could be a little kid. It could be, a, it could be a, uh, someone whose life is broken and you are able to help them and not take any credit. See, it's not the helping part. It's the not taking credit. You have the power to help, but you don't need anything out of it. And you're willing to exercise your power on somebody else's behalf. Does that lead to meekness? If you make a practice of it, okay? And so that little principle there is something that I think we can practice in a lot of different areas. And so I'm going to challenge you during these studies is to every day find something in your reading that you can put into an exercise. Find a way to exercise that spiritual muscle so it develops a character trait in your life, okay? And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take just a couple of comments here taken from chapter seven, verses 24 uh, through 27. And here's what it says. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Then he goes on and he says, the opposite is true. If you don't listen to God's word, uh, you're building on the sand. So let me give you a couple things. First of all, if it, so it's interesting. So, so um, Autumn said something earlier that I, I want to I not correct, but I want to make sure you understand. She said, don't get hung up if the synoptics don't match exactly. That doesn't mean it's not worth looking at. It doesn't mean it's not worth researching. It's just don't get hung up because lots of people have researched it. There are answers to most of those things or at least possible explanations. So just don't write it off and go, well, it doesn't make any sense. No, there are answers, but that is not the point of that thing, okay? And so, yes, there are answers. You want to look at them, great, but don't get derailed into looking at that. You still can learn from the passage, right? And so one of the things we want to do is we want to, First establish, do I trust God's word? Do I trust God's word? And, and if I can trust God's word, then he says all of these things can happen. These character traits can be developed, my life can be built, um, all these things. But it begins with, do I trust God's word? 
Do I believe God's word? And I think we have to just start with that one. Hearing God's word. So here are the three things you need. You need to listen to God's word. You need to learn from it. And you need to do something about it. And then you'll be someone that you're trying to be. Okay? So let's start with this. Uh, God's word. Do I, trust, do I trust God's word? So again and again in scripture, uh, we hear all kinds of things. God's voice is powerful. Um, we find that in tons of places. Uh, God's voice is beneficial. So not only do I trust God, have you ever talked to someone and you walked away and thinking, you know, I think that person is for me? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've walked away from lots of conversation and thinking that person is not for you, right? Right? How do you receive criticism from those two different scenarios? Right? If you know they're not for you, you're tempted to not listen to anything they have to say. Even if it's true, it's not going to help you much because you can't really hear it, right? If we establish right off the bat what, what Scripture teaches that God is for us, God is for us. We hear his voice differently. So God's word is for us. It is beneficial. It is powerful. It is right. In other words, it is true. God's word is true and it is best. And so I'm a pragmatist. And so one of the questions I am tempted to ask is, does it work? That's not the first question we should be asking, but it tends to be my first question. But is it true? If it's true and it works, that's a pretty powerful combination, right? And it should work if it's true. Well, in God's word, even when it's counterintuitive to us, it's, it's not conventional wisdom, it is still true and it does work. And so I have to come at God's word, not with my eyes closed, not saying, well, they don't match up. It is. No, there are, there are explanations, possible explanations. But I, giving God's word the benefit of the doubt that this is true, it will work. If I trust it, you'll come away with it, some different messages from it. Um, and then uh, you expect challenges. So first thing that will happen is you begin to, to try to live these out and to begin to, to do some exercises here. Um, and uh, let's say, for example, like you, you come across a part that talks about giving um, or the fruit of your life. You begin to examine your life. Say, I need to have better fruit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start giving of my time or my money, whatever it might be. And there will be a challenge to it because from the Garden of Eden, Satan's, Satan's uh, counterattack against God is, is no different. He'll just say this to you. Is that really true? Is that really what it says? Yeah, that's what the snake, the snake said to Eve, right? Did he really say you can't eat this, this fruit? Right? Are you sure? Is that, what he, is that what he really meant? Right? And so you start fudging on it. So we live in a world that loves to fudge on truth. Then, well, first of all, the good section doesn't even believe there is such a thing as truth. And those who have a truth have a way of fudging on it so it justifies whatever they want to do, right? And we all do that. So truth is truth. I'm going to accept it as such. I'm not going to fudge on it. I'm not going to let Satan lie to me, okay? Now, not only will be God's word be challenged by the enemy, but you will be challenged by the Holy Spirit. And if you take this challenge on, you'll grow. If you take this challenge on, you regress, right? If you go this way, you regress. If you go this way, you're going to grow. And so the Holy Spirit's going to say, now that you heard it, what are we going to do about it? Okay? That's an important, important thing. So, so first of all, hearing God's word and then, and then learning from it. Now, we live in, uh, we, we live in, a, uh, in a world that is all about narratives, all right? Our political system has been influenced by narratives, some true, some not true. Um, our, our, our lives, the way, what we think is going to make us happy is about a certain narrative. Um, we, we live in a world of narratives, and people get paid bazillions of dollars to help form the narrative of your life through algorithms and all kinds of things, okay? Now, here is the problem. If we... 
if we listen to the wrong narrative. God's word is a narrative. It's not just about God, it's also about you. And in relationship with God, what is the arc of your life supposed to look like? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? What is that arc, that narrative of your life supposed to look like? All kinds of people are trying to write the narrative of your life, even you. But nobody knows a better narrative. So remember Garden of Eden, um, Satan says, did you really? And, and Eve says, oh yeah, good point. Okay, I'm going to try this, okay? And God comes back later and says, why did you hide? Which hiding from God, dumb. Um, why did you hide? Because we were naked. And did you ever notice the question after that? Who, who told you you were naked? Who told you naked was a thing? See, suddenly a new narrative, a destructive, terrible, awful, evil narrative had entered the world in their lives. This is how powerful it is to listen to the wrong narrative. The wrong narrative, it's what, it's what Matt talked about. It'll lead you to decisions, it will lead you to a destiny. Matt talked about that. If you haven't heard that sermon from a week ago, it was unbelievable. It was the most powerful thing. It was, it was great. And so the narrative, and so is the narrative of your life going to be God's word or something else? I was just thinking about something. I was, I was praying for someone today. And I can see the battle in their life right now is between God's word and the narrative God would write for their life and their urges. Because their urges write a different narrative. Because there's a lot of pain there, and I'm even going to do the hard work of letting God heal my pain, or I'm going to drink it away, or eat it away, or do something stupid to get rid of it. And there are two different narratives. One is built on sand, one is built on rock. And so as you're reading, think about what does this say about the narrative of my life, how I've lived it to this point, which might lead you to some of these things here, the morning about how you've lived your life, right? Or it may lead you to Develop a new character trait. All right, so that's the first thing. Uh, how much do we got? Here we go. Okay, I'm going to go. You have four minutes. <clears throat> okay, but you want, you're going to have lots of questions, I'm sure. All right, so here it is. So, so you learn God's word. You learn what it means in the narrative of your life. And then you do something about it so you can become someone different, right? So you do something about it. So here's what it's required. I believe you learn from God's words most by obedience. You learn most by obedience, all right? And so here's what you got to do. You got to do something. You got to do three things. You got to predetermine obedience. When I read God's word, I need to predetermine that whatever it says, I'm going to do it. Whatever God's word said, I'm, it's, not a, it's not a case by case decision. It is this is God's word. It is true. It is good for me. God is for me. Therefore, what he tells me to do, I'm going to do it. Not, you know, if I get this sense, some sense that God says, you know, streak through the parking lot on Sunday morning. That's not from God, okay? It's God's word I'm talking about. Not, there are lots of people walking around having experiences, mystical stuff. No, that's baloney. God's word, okay? It's actually not some sense I have. It is God's word. Now, God's Holy Spirit will affirm to me what God's word said, but it doesn't come first from some intuition. It's God's word. And if I read it in God's word, and it's clear that this is something I need to address, I'm going to predetermine to do it. Secondly is I'm going to do it proactively. I'm going to, I'm going to do proactive obedience. I often just find myself praying, God, my life is yours, do with it as you will, which is passive. And so I have to remind myself, Lord, this is my life. Help me do with it what you want me to do. See, I'm going to, I'm going to say, my daddy said this saying, um, when we get lazy, and, and we'd ask for something, you know, like, oh, you want me to roll you over and put it in your pocket too? <laughs> it was kind of a hillbilly way of saying, hey, get off the couch and make this happen, right? So 
proactively being obedient. I'm not just going to be obedient if God hits me on the head with it and explains it to me through smack. No, I'm going to be proactively looking for things to be obedient to because I do know that his life, his narrative is better than mine, okay? And the third thing is this. I'm going to practice. Here's what's going to be surprising. You're not going to be great at being obedient. Matter of fact, you'll probably never be great at it. But here's the good news. You can get better. And you're not going to be very good to start with. Because you've been, you've been living by a whole other narrative, whether it's your urges or what people tell you or, or what the TV, whatever it is, you've been living by other narratives and to learn to hear his voice and live by his narrative takes practice. And so today, I'm just gonna practice being obedient to you. Now, here's what's great. It's not just stop drinking, which is a, a good place to start if that's a problem for you, okay? But as you become obedient, he fine-tunes your conscience, your ability to hear his voice to, to more and more specific, more and more beneficial things to your life. And as you hone in on more and more specific things, by the way, just a little thing, I said this over and again, I don't want anybody to go home and think about, Christ didn't come to condemn us, okay? The Holy Spirit's voice is not a condemning voice. You're a jerk, you'll never be anything else. This is bad. No, it's not that. It's not like that at all. It is very specific. The Holy Spirit says, you got this right here, this little bitterness thing, that little, or that reaction thing, or that thing, you've got this. Let's fix this today. And when you come upon a this, by the way, it requires both reading God's word and prayer every day. When you come upon a, a this, not a, a fog that settles on you, I'm a terrible person. No, that's not God. Holy Spirit says this. Today we're going to work on this. And when you see a this, and it might be as simple as don't use a certain word, <laughs> right? Or maybe as simple as your reaction or your attitude about somebody at the office. This. I'm going to work on God with your help. I'm going to work on this today. And tomorrow we're going to talk about it again. And if I failed, we're going to work on it again. But when I succeed, we're going to celebrate. And so I'm going to do these three things. I'm going to be predetermined obedience. I'm going to be proactively obedient. And I'm going to practice obedience. And that's what I have. Good. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Um, real fast, anybody here have questions? So one of the things I want to do now that we have some folks in the room is also um, answer maybe any difficult passages to our best ability that you come across, where maybe you're looking at something and you just go, hey, what did this mean? You know, like I don't even, you know, I used to get frustrated when I was a kid and I tried to read the Bible. I was like, I don't even understand. Said, Honor your parents. Like, yeah, what is that? <laughs> so um, that was Old Testament. You have to do that. Anyway, um, okay, anybody, any questions in, in the room that you have about Matthew, anything that was said, any comments, anything like that? Good to go? Wow. This, yes. What do you mean? I know. Oh, you've so, got it. So the way that we've organized it is so that you can read, I think like Monday you read two chapters, but from here on out you're going to read pretty much a chapter a day, and that will get us through, by Easter we'll be reading the resurrection. So to get through Matthew in that time, our uh, debriefs are going to follow that outline, the, um, the, the five discourses. So what you're going to be talking about in your groups is based off of what we're doing at the debrief. So they'll be pretty close, but they're not going to be exact. Um, so, it, But you can ask us any questions of anything from the devos, from what you're talking about in your groups, whatever you need. Got it. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, okay, a question that we got in is... Uh, it says, uh, and I think, Doral, this is what you were just talking about, is how do we make the correct interpretation and apply it as God intended? Because we talked about all this, you know, interpretation and making sense of it all, and how do we know we are on the correct path? 
Yeah, see, I don't think it's that hard. I, I, I really don't. If we, if we come at, yes, there are some things that we need to have some help with maybe. Um, so when I say learn God's word, I don't even just, I don't just mean that specific thing. Learning the principles in God's word, pretty quickly you recognize when you're off track, if you've, if you've been practicing for a while. And so I, I would give you some things. First of all, read about it, pray about it. Um, and then um, commentaries. Uh, just find some, and, and we can help you with that. We can help you find some good commentaries. That will Do you just, have a stu- Is this a study Bible that you have here? I was kind of... Yes. Okay, because this is a great, this would be a great resource for people. So I got this lovely Christmas present from uh, some really amazing people. Doyle, oh, wow. and, Doyle and Connie gave me oh. <laughs> uh, So it's a, it's a life application <laughs> study Bible, I believe. Yeah, so life application study Bible. And basically what it is, is it um, the top half of the page is the scripture. And then the bottom half of the page, you can just see verse by verse. It has little explanations of, of what people have the common, you know, it's just like a real small little commentary just attached to your Bible. So it's really helpful. Yeah. So if there's anything like, what does this mean? How do I, there'll, there'll be some, someone who's already studied this. So look for, uh, do you know who the uh, publisher of this is? Zondervan's usually yeah. a popular one. This is Zondervan. Um, Zondervan. So they usually have some pretty good stuff. So make sure you, there's some that are wacky, so you got to be careful. So look for like kind of the, the best rated ones. We'll give you like a historical orthodox teaching on scriptures and not try to like the uh, Bible story I talked about this sleep weekend. Right, right. There's some weird ones out there. But so you, you can also also reach out to your small group leader or to us, and, uh, and, and we can help guide you if there's a specific passage you're confused about. Um, and if there's ambiguity about it, we can, we can talk about that. But by and large, I don't get too confused. I just get convicted when I read Scripture. It's <laughs> good. Good. Okay. Um, any, anything else? Any last call? Everybody's good? Okay. Let's... Uh, right there. Back there. Oh, do we have someone? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I can't, I can't see back there. Yep. Yeah, okay. So verse this is uh, verse 12, John the Baptist. It's, uh, is it chapter 3? Yes. Did you say? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I was wondering if someone was going to ask about that. So Doyle's going to answer it. Um, okay, so it's John the Baptist, and he is talking about how um, uh, he baptizes with water, but there's going to be one to come, blah, blah, blah. And then in verse 12, it says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Something I'm sure you talk about all the time. Go ahead. So, so, what, so what's the question? What does it mean? Well, he'll, he'll divide the righteous from the unrighteous. I mean, I, there are those who are, who are going to have a relationship with God because of Christ, and there are the, those who are just going to be religious. It's the thing you talked about, one of you talked about in the last couple of weeks, about uh, depart from me, I never knew you. And I, I think it's pretty straightforward. Now, he gives another illustration that's a little bit more probably uh, easier to understand, right, where he's dividing. It, you know, Sheep and the goats. Right, sheep and the goats. And it's kind of the same illustration, right? right. Is where he's going to come. And so I think this one's difficult because we don't know what um, any of those things are. It's like a pitchfork, right? right? <laughs> so you just, you take the wheat and they throw it up in the air and the little wheat grains fall down and then the exactly hay right. blows away. The yep. threshing floor is a high place where it's breezy. Do you so know that because of Gideon? There. I do. Yeah. I have a son named Gideon and the threshing <laughs> it's exactly. in the, that goes story. into that story. Exactly. Okay. Uh, okay, another one is, um, I, I, uh, I read, it says in 548. An, by the way, did that answer your question? Yes. It's okay. an eschatological reference. 
which means end times and That's a big someday. word. Okay. Uh, he uses that in his Devo this week. 5.48 says this. <laughs> I We're going to be here now. all night because we've got questions. So let me get through these. And this is exactly what we want, is questions that you guys have about the passages that you don't quite understand. Uh, 5.48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who wants to take, take that one? Matt. Matthew. What does that mean? Be perfect as your, fa- as your heavenly Father is perfect. It also says, you know, in the New Testament and Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. Um, but... God is never, and nor has he ever asked for perfection. He's asking for progression, right? He's asking for progress. You know, that I like to think um, our relationship with Christ is like a, a child um, waddling over to their mom or dad as a baby. Um, they're going to fall, but what's the, one, what's the one place they want to go? They want to be in the arms of their, of their father or their mother, right? And so they're going to they're fall, they're going to scrape their knee, and, 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 but they're going to get back up, and they have one place they're trying to pursue, one place they're trying to be, and that's in their, their parents' arms. And for me, I, that's, that's how I, I, I see our relationship with Christ. Like we're going to fall, God is, and, and, and we're blanketed by his forgiveness. Um, when Jesus said on the cross, to telestai, it means it is finished, it's paid in full, meaning that our, our sin is paid in full. So we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be completely holy as God himself is holy. It's a characteristic that he himself alone holds. Um, so we're going to fall, we're going to scrape, but we've got to continue to move forward. And that mark of being perfect or working towards becoming more holy in our lives um, it's all about progression, about continuing to move forward uh, into the arms of our Father. Hmm. I do want to add to that, which is um, just as I was going through the you know, six examples and the comparisons and all that, um, one of the things that stood out to me was um, these are just impossible things that Jesus is asking us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Like they are absolutely impossible. And uh, Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Renovation of the Heart. And all of these things should point to you that you can't do them on your own. As Jesus is teaching you how to live in the kingdom, it should point out to you, gosh, I need someone to help me do this. I need, I need a savior. All of these things, you know, if it's like, if it's all about just not murdering someone today, I probably am going to be okay. But if I can't even get angry, man, I'm in trouble. I need somebody to help me, to, help, to do that for me, to be that kind of a person on the inside. And that's what Jesus does. You know, that's, that is the, the beauty of the cross is that he comes and he is perfecting us so that in this life, we, may, we are never going to be perfect, but we will one day be perfect because of Jesus. So. Good, good. Doyle, what was, uh, someone wanted to know your third point. Uh, was this predetermined obedience, proactively obey? And practice. And practice. I knew it was a P. Practice every day. <laughs> I knew it had to be. It wouldn't be godly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think in the original Greek, that's what the yep, Jesus yep. did on the Sermon on the Mount, is every one of his points started yep. with the same. Blessed. Blessed. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Okay, good. Okay, uh, any other questions that we have here? Um, last call. Great questions, you guys. Okay. Do we have, I can't see a thing out there. So, yes, please. Yeah, so uh, the, the question is, what do we do with uh, Matthew 5, 41, 42? Um, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what does that mean? Matt, what? Autumn. Okay, 
so I think what Jesus is saying is that he's looking for a heart response and not just us looking to check something off of a list. So we want to say, okay, just how far do I have to go for somebody? And what this section is talking about is he's saying that I want your heart to want the best for even that Roman soldier or that landlord that is pushing you down. And so what you want is you, you genuinely want what is good for them. And so if, they're, if they have a heavy load that a Roman soldier could make you carry down the road um, and they say you have to carry it a mile, you don't carry it a mile and then just set it down. You say, well, you know, hey, do you want me to put that in the trunk of your car? I'm not going to just carry it to your car. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to take it into your house and put it in your refrigerator? And it's not because you're trying to check off a list. It's because that's the kind of person you are. You are actively seeking the good of that that soldier, that enemy. And, and that is the attitude that's going to change the world. It's not the attitude that just does what it has to do. Is that where the saying, go the extra mile, comes from? Maybe. Oh, my goodness, you guys. Breakthrough. (laughs) It's interesting because it's also one of the, you have heard it said. Yes. And so in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is really not a, a, a prescription for justice. It is a limitation of revenge. So in the Old Testament, you can't have your son get hurt. Let's say somebody breaks his arm and then go wipe out his entire clan. And so the Old Testament, is it, justice has to be equal and revenge can't overextend itself. And so what Jesus is saying is revenge is not really an option. It's what you said. We have to be proactive in the positive uh, way that we respond of giving. And, and so I think it is a contrast also to old ways. What's the minimum I can do to be okay with God? To what, is, what do I do in response to God's incredible goodness? Is I love and I care in ways that seem absurd sometimes. Yeah. Uh, another question we got was, was the Sermon on the Mount intended to be more of a moral compass rather than an absolute directive? And I would say that the, that would be the same thing, is uh, here is where we're headed. This is the ultimate goal. This is where we want to end up. Everybody go in that direction. This is the kind, kind of, of people we want to be. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. This is what kingdom looks like, kingdom living looks like, you know? And so um, I don't think it's, yeah, I think if I'm interpreting this correctly, it's more like... Um, uh, this is supposed to give me some kind of moral guidance versus this is exactly where you're supposed to go. And I would say probably both, yeah. right? Okay. Um, okay, let me just double check, make sure. Any other last questions? Great questions, Matt. You're going to have to help me because I know there were some hands, but I can't see them. So everybody's good? Good to go? Great. Okay, cool. Okay, so um, what, what's next? Tell them what they need to do next. Uh, so you guys should have all gotten an email with your discussion guide in it. So go ahead and talk about that with your groups. Talk about it with a family member. Uh, we have posted answers because I know a lot of you are really going to get your panties in a bunch about this. That I'm not are probably you allowed to say that. Say that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about uh, this. We just, we just got taken off Facebook <laughs> yeah, right you were there. So <laughs> close. We were almost done. Just got taken off. So close. Instagram we went have the down. answers to this chart so that you can feel fulfilled in your life. So we posted those on uh, Planning Center in your groups so you can look at that. Okay. And I'll just stop now. Okay, great. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you guys for being here. We would loved it. Please be here next week if you can. Be here uh, in person. It is really, really fun, and it's good yeah. to just have some faces in front of us. So thank you guys, and we'll see you, uh, we'll see you this weekend. God bless.